And will you turn in your Bibles, first of all, to the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the second chapter. Our sermon text will be Deuteronomy 2, verses 1 through 25. And to drive the point home of the relevance of these things, of the Old Testament, the relevance to us, we'll then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a passage we have read before in this connection, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. But we begin with the word of God as it's given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the first 25 verses. Moses is addressing, of course, the children of Israel there just on the cusp, just on the threshold of the conquest of the land. And he's addressing them in these first four chapters, actually, addressing them on matters of their own history. So hear the word of God. Then we turned and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north and command the people, saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them. For I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Araba road, away from Elath and from Ezion Geber. And we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given our to the sons of Lot as a possession. The Amim lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, But the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the brook Zered. 
Now, the time that it took us, took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. So it finally came, so it came about when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, today you shall cross over Ar, the border of Moab. When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them, nor provoke them. For I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it. But the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them. And they dispossessed them and settled in their place, just as he did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir, whom he destroyed when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. And the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim who came from Kaftar, destroyed them and lived in their place. Arise, set out and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heaven, who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish because of you. And now will you turn to me, uh, turn to, with me, to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul is writing by the Spirit, telling the church with respect to these Old Testament events. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. 
nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I need to ask you a question today, and I... It's a question that really needs to be addressed to our wider culture in these evil days in which we live, these days of chaos and absurd goings-on. The question is just this. Does yesterday matter today? Does yesterday matter today? In many schools and this wider culture, it's become very common to see historical precedent treated as though it's essentially irrelevant today. Whatever happened a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or even last week doesn't seem to make much of an impression on our thinking and behavior today. Yesterday's headlines are largely forgotten. And what fascinates us today is the news today. Or worse, what people's opinions are today. We should be alarmed, I think, at the way that public opinion polls are edging out hard news and the way both of them together are drowning out the compelling lessons of history. One reason for history's disappearance from education is that it clearly doesn't serve to promote the interests of secular humanism, which is the dominant religion of our culture. And of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. In fact, history undermines secular humanism at every point. So we shouldn't be surprised to see history such a neglected discipline today because it's an embarrassment to the secular cause. But the cultural consequences of our losing history are both enormous and easy to see. Over the last generation, we have seen social studies replacing history as one of the core subjects in most secondary schools. Social studies. But you see the same phenomenon, the disappearance of history at every level of education. Some years ago, oh my, it's been close to 30 years ago now, I withdrew from a distance learning graduate program in New Testament studies. And the reason I withdrew from it was because of the academic orientation of the New Testament department of this school, 
the orientation was so blatantly anti-historical. The emphasis in all the assigned reading that I encountered, without a single exception, was on this thing called social discourse and the origin and purpose of myths, not history, myths. So I only read so far and quickly cut my losses and left the program. If I'd kept on pursuing at that point a Master of Theology degree, it would have been to serve the church, a church that I'm very glad to say simply isn't all that interested in cleverly devised fables and myths of men. I have better things to do with my time, better things to do with my money. And so do you. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the Israel of God. We have been given, in these last days, a great commission to make disciples of all nations. So we need to know our culture, our audience, and that includes knowing the historical forces that brought us to where we are today. And it seems self-evident that this generation of Americans, which is our mission field, this generation of Americans doesn't study history, doesn't even study our own national history, except so much as we need either to pass a test in school or to support our own pet philosophies. That much will commit to memory. So Americans might remember certain isolated events, but we're poor generally in interpreting the connection between those events, their meaning. So we see airplanes flown into buildings, we see mass murders in schools and theaters and abortion parlors across the country, but we don't get beyond that. We don't get beyond attempts at mere regulation to fix them, to stop them. As a culture, we've come to the place at which many actually seem to believe that history is nothing more than a random succession of events without any meaning beyond the immediate emotional and political impact. And that impact, that emotional and political impact, is the bread and butter of popular media. That is what sells, because Americans, by and large, are the uncritical consumers of the five-second video clip and soundbite. That's what fascinates us. We don't demand more of ourselves. We don't demand more of the facts. We don't have time for critical thinking and interpretation of these things, comparing them to what the scripture tells us about the unfolding of history. We're content instead with spectacular video footage and pithy comments from someone that we don't even know much less have any reason to trust. We're content with hearing and seeing news as entertainment 
but actually to go a little bit deeper, to understand the covenant cohesiveness and the divine logic of events, world events, to understand the import of the fall and the rise of nations, to know the testimony that these things bear to the justice and the mercy of the Almighty God who raises up and casts down nations according to his own good pleasure. Well, these things are completely lost on the average American, aren't they? Sad to say, they're even lost on many professing Christians. If the lessons of history were understood, if they were taught and learned and embraced the character and reputation of this country that we love, would be considerably brighter, and so would our future be. Beloved, we live in an age of fleeting opportunity. Opportunity to learn and to practice the practical lessons of history. Opportunity to repent of our we-the-people waywardness and national sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the rightful heir and sovereign king of all the nations of the earth. This is our moment of opportunity. Because in this regard, at least, the secular humanists are exactly right. History doesn't serve a humanistic purpose. In fact, it demolishes the premises of secular humanism everywhere. Those two intersect. They cannot peacefully exist. The question is, which of the two, history or humanism, Which of them, we as a nation, are going to have? We can't have both. One of them has to go. And of course, the testimony throughout Scripture is that that nation's blessed whose citizens embrace the conviction that Christ, yesterday, today, and forever, Christ rules in the affairs of men. History is relevant. It is crucial to any people who cherish a hope for the future because history is didactic. History is didactic. It teaches. It teaches as it goes. You may recall that Paul told the Corinthians exactly that in the passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, referring to this very period that we're studying as we're studying Deuteronomy. Israel's wilderness experience and their stubborn refusal to trust and obey Christ, that spiritual rock that followed them. He says, now all those things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." The purpose of all of history is to teach us obedience to Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him alone, we, whether as individuals, families, or a nation, in him alone we stand secure. It 
If history didn't teach, if God's law had just somehow dropped out of the blue one more thing in a meaningless, irrational series of events, then the authority of that law that dropped out of heaven would be fatally undercut, wouldn't it? Why pay attention to it if we can't demonstrate from our own experience such things as cause and effect, crime and consequence, blessings on obedience and curses on disobedience. In actual fact, history and the lessons of history are the very ground upon which God has built his law. The commandments didn't come to us either in Exodus chapter 20 or in Deuteronomy 5. They didn't come to us as a bolt out of the blue. They came from a covenant God to a covenanted people with a covenant history together. They came to a people who already knew their lawgiver who already had abundant reason to love him, to trust him. Exodus 19, God says, you've seen what I've done to the Egyptians. That's what he said to those assembled there at the foot of Mount Sinai. You've seen what I've done to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. First came the providential and gracious lessons of covenant history. And then, on the ground of that, he delivers his law. Sweep away history, and law and government go with it. Sweep away history, and why not have lawlessness? Why not have anarchy? Why not spend our days and nights eating and drinking and pursuing every form of idolatry and debauchery if today signifies nothing and tomorrow we die? Laissez le bon temps rouler. Let the good times roll. But if we establish history and the lessons that it teaches concerning God and men, then the law has a place to take root among us. It has a place to flourish among us. Moses reviews God's law with his people gathered there on the plains of Moab, but not until chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Not until they'd had these four solid chapters of their own history recounted to them. If Israel's going to enjoy her covenanted future in the land of Canaan, then first of all, they have to grasp history's lessons, their own history, and not only their own history, they have to grasp the lesson of the history of their neighbors. And this is a very important point, both for Israel, that was then on the threshold of her inheritance, and for the Israel of God, the church today. The point of it is that parochialism, that narrow tunnel vision view that considers only our own life and our own well-being, parochialism 
will never serve the purposes for which God set us apart as a people. While it's true that our spiritual comforts all may be in here, within the church, through Christ, but our calling is to live out there. Israel's calling is to conduct herself righteously among her neighbors, including those neighbors through whose borders she's had to pass on her way to Canaan. And among other things, this means understanding that not all of our neighbors are created equal. The Lord makes distinctions among the peoples of the earth, and so therefore should we. And we need, of course, to be very careful to make the right distinctions, not our own arbitrary ones. Here's an example of this. According to God's law, an Israelite isn't permitted to treat an Edomite or even an Egyptian as though he were the social equivalent of an Amorite. The reason lay in their history. The Edomite is your brother, so treat him like a brother. You have a common history. And what about that Egyptian national who's living next door to you, an expatriate in the promised land? That Egyptian, even, he's more to you than just a neighbor. He's also a living, breathing reminder to you that you, too, were once a foreigner, even a slave in Egypt. So you treat that expatriate Egyptian next door to you with kindness, as one redeemed from slavery yourself. The Ammonites, the Moabites, never mind their lack of hospitality toward Israel on the march, never mind that they refused you safe passage through their land, never mind that they even came out for battle against you as you were on your way here. God's law protects those nations. Don't provoke them. Don't harass them. They're not to be annihilated like those reprobate nations across the Jordan River. Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, don't harass them. Don't provoke them. Pay for what you use as you move on through. The reason, again, lay in their history, their inalienable heritage as the children of Abraham's nephew, the righteous Lot, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Those nations across the river, no such history, no such covenant relationships, and their deep depravity at this particular juncture of history their deep depravity renders those nations and the gods of those nations ripe, past ripe for dispossession and even annihilation. And that is not a strategic objective that is easily or lightly made. 
It's not a matter for private interpretation whether to annihilate a nation or not. Dispossessing the Canaanites both of their lands and of their very existence is a strategic objective rooted in God's clear revelation, first of their history and then of law. And these are hard things to say and hard things to contemplate, but it emphasizes for us that the law is all about making distinctions, isn't it? Not the arbitrary distinctions that sinners make among ourselves, our prejudices and so on, but the distinctions that God makes in his law. These are differences to be respected. Differences of persons, differences of practices. For instance, going back to another part of God's law, which we, God willing, will eventually come to. Women aren't men and shouldn't wear men's clothing. That's in God's law. Is that a matter of personal preference? No. There it is in God's law. Men aren't women and shouldn't wear women's clothing. It's in the law. I owe duties to my wife that are absolutely forbidden to any other woman. And vice versa. It's in the law, which is about making distinctions. All seven days of the week may feel the same to us, but they're not the same because the law makes a distinction between the six days and that one that's set apart for holy rest and remembrance. Matters of worship are just the same. God makes distinctions here too, and so must we. King Uzziah of Judah. King Uzziah, you may remember, wasn't a priest, couldn't be a priest. He didn't belong in the temple offering incense as if he were. It's in the law. Some things are wrong to do. Other things are right to do. Some sins the law covers with a sacrifice. Others the law exposes with a public stoning. We're not left to our own discretion in these important decisions affecting our society and its well-being. Isaiah, speaking by the Holy Spirit, had exactly had this exactly right when he said, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. The light hasn't begun to shine on those who have no knowledge of God's revealed will. There's a godly discrimination that the people of God practice together, a godly discrimination among peoples and practices that the Bible calls holiness. The church has to learn to discriminate because we worship him who discriminates, who makes distinctions. And as we by faith behold him in a mirror, we find ourselves being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. But I should say it again, we have to be very careful to draw the right conclusions 
about this duty to discriminate. For instance, God says repeatedly through the Bible, Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. And of course, that's his sovereign prerogative as creator to extend to any sinner or not to extend the golden scepter of his loving kindness. That is not a choice you and I have. We're not the sovereign. We're the servants. We do what he tells us to do. We have no license to eradicate Esau as we march through his land on our way to Canaan. We have no license from God to seize our neighbor's land or property as if it's our own. History teaches first what the law later enforces in the Eighth Commandment. Esau's your brother. I've given him Mount Seir as his possession. Don't you touch his possession. Moab and Ammon, likewise, are nations, even though related to Israel, they are nations sunk in generation after generation of idolatry and wickedness. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Does that entitle Israel to their lands and property? Not a square foot of it. Wicked or not, they're the children of righteous lot. They have a place. Don't you touch the distinctive inheritance that God gave each of them. It is not yours to enjoy. Now what this implies to us, of course, is that the living God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and of earth and of history, the sovereign Lord is good to all that live. He's good to all that live. He's established the boundaries not only of Israel, he's established the boundaries of all peoples in all ages. He first assigned and now recognizes and secures the borders of nations. That is, he does if he intends for those nations to survive as nations, and in doing so, he's absolutely faithful, never forgetting to a thousand generations his covenant mercies to Abraham, even when Abraham's own children are ready to dispossess one another at the drop of a hat. God doesn't allow it. Beloved, this decision of how we treat our neighbors is never, ever ours to make. It's always been and will always be God's choice. If we don't understand that, then we'll never understand Israel's conquest of Canaan. We'll never understand the divinely appointed eradication of precisely these ten thoroughly wicked nations and no other. If we don't understand the distinctions that God makes in history and in law, 
then these things, like the eradication of the Canaanites, these things will always be an offense to us. We'll never be able to get past them. So let me be clear on this, as clear as the Bible demands that we be. Not one of those humanly contrived genocides of these past 34 centuries can be justified by pointing to God's annihilation of the Canaanites. The choice to destroy a people or not destroy them is never ours to make. The world and its dwellers belong to the Lord. He's the one who raises up. He's the one who casts down. Our part is to seek him. Our part is to learn and know and do his will. But there's another side to it, too. If we don't understand and appreciate the discrimination of God, the sovereign distinctions he makes among peoples, then we'll never fully understand the absolute security of our own inheritance in Christ. That choice, too, was God's choice to make. And before the world was, he made it. He made that choice. He set a people, a specific people, apart for his own glory. And ours now, by faith, is simply to trust and obey. Now, what does this new generation of Israelites need to know as they're standing there on the threshold of their inheritance? Moses continues here in chapter 2 to teach history. After God sentenced their rebel fathers to a wilderness death back in chapter 1, verses 34 to 40, he's recounting that. And after that failed attempt in verses 41 to 46 to strike the Amorites anyway and force their way in, Israel finally turns south again, back into the wilderness. They skirted the western edge of Edom, and here at Kadesh Barnea, they just hang out for the balance of 38 years. 38 years until the last of that unbelieving generation perished. When at God's command they then turn northward again, there are certain things that they need to know, marching orders that are informed by relevant historical facts. And knowing them isn't just going to shape their, content, their, their conduct, it's also going to shape the way they view their own chances of victory. Because up until now, those chances must have looked pretty dim. Pretty dim. But now at last, the unbelieving fathers are out of the way. And now the sons need to be just as bold to inherit as the fathers had been backward. The sons need to be as intelligent about God's ways as the fathers had been ignorant. The sons need to be as wise 
as the fathers had been foolish. So God has three imperatives for them. Three imperatives. The first imperative, as you move on into your own inheritance, is this. Don't meddle in the inheritance of others. Don't meddle in the inheritance of others. I've given this land to them, not to you. The borders God assigns the nations of the world are sacred. Don't provoke those people. Pass on through quickly. Stay on the main road, all of which is simply to say, don't meddle. Mind your own business. The second imperative is this. Pay your own way. Pay your own way. Not only are you forbidden to seize their land as though it were yours, you're forbidden to steal anything from them. Not one bite of food, not one drop of water. So just as geographical boundaries are sacred, so are the conceptual boundaries we call property rights. We have no right to seize our neighbor's property. And after all, why would we? Look at verse 7. Moses says, These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. It's echoed in the 23rd Psalm, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing. So what could you possibly seize from these people that the Lord your God hasn't already freely given you? Pay your own way. The third imperative as they turn north again is implied by the history of these heathen nations and their respective lands. It's the implied imperative that Israel be bold in going to possess your own inheritance. Be bold in going in. Here again, good history teaches good theology. You're heading north now, out of Kadesh Barnea, where you've sat for 38 years. You're heading north. Do you see this land of Edom off to your right? The Horites used to live there before the Edomites drove them out and settled in their land. Moving north still, do you see this land of Moab? It used to be the land of the Amim, back before the Moabites drove them out and settled in their land. Passing northward through the land of Ammon, the Zamzamim used to live there before the Ammonites drove them out and settled in their land. Someone else was here before us. Nations steeped in idolatry until God drove them out and gave their land to others. So the ghosts of history have a great deal to teach us. You've heard about 
the giants who used to live over here in Moab and over there in Ammon, they were a race of men great and numerous and of tremendous stature, the Rephaim. Humanly speaking, they were invincible. And the Lord, mighty in battle, drove them out. Even before these heathen nations, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, if he did this for them, how much more will he drive out the giants facing you, who are his special treasure? Be bold. Go in. Possess what I'm giving you. Well, may God in his mercy teach us some of these practical lessons of history, giving us the wisdom rightly to discriminate, rightly to interpret, and the boldness in Christ then to take action. Not for the destruction of nations, but for the blessing of those among whom the Holy Spirit has so widely and so wisely scattered his church in these last days. You are the salt of the earth. You, in Christ, are the light of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that you teach us from your word. Many of them are difficult for us, hard to comprehend, and our culture and our education growing up certainly has not taught us these things. But you and your kindness and your love have taught us. And so we pray that you would teach us to discriminate wisely and according to your law and your will, not according to our own inborn or trained prejudices. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to love one another, and as the church, loving one another, love also our neighbors, and to love them enough to bring this gospel and the sword of the Spirit to our lost neighbors, that they might come to bow the knee before Christ as they put their trust and their faith in him alone. Thank you for the ultimate victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only over the church, but over all nations and all history. Teach us to reflect on these things for your greater glory and our better understanding of your ways among men. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.